Hello, and welcome to the November 2010 Respiratory Care Podcast. I am Dean Hess, editor of the journal. We have an interesting group of papers this month. Sarah Fargi will read the abstracts, and I will provide some commentary. Our first paper is by Rorich et al., and its title is Hypercapnic Respiratory Failure in Obesity Hypoventilation Syndrome, CO2 Response, and Acetazolamide Treatment Effects. The objective of this study was to investigate the effect of acetazolamide on bicarbonate concentration and CO2 response in patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome mechanically ventilated for hypercapnic respiratory failure. CO2 response tests and arterial blood gas analysis were performed in 25 patients ready for a spontaneous breathing trial and repeated in a subgroup of 8 patients after acetazolamide treatment. CO2 response test was measured as 1. Hypercapnic drive response, which is the ratio of the change in airway occlusion pressure 0.1 seconds after the start of inspiratory flow to the change in PaCO2, and 2. Hypercapnic ventilatory response, which is the ratio of the change in minute volume to the change in PaCO2. There was no significant relationship between CO2 response and body mass index. Patients with higher bicarbonate concentration had a more blunted CO2 response. Grouping the patients according to the first, second, and third tertials of bicarbonate concentration, the hypercapnic drive response was 0.32 centimeters of water per millimeter of mercury, 0.22 centimeters of water per millimeter of mercury, and 0.1 centimeters of water per millimeter of mercury, respectively. The hypercapnic ventilatory response was 0.46 liters per minute per millimeter of mercury, 0.48 liters per minute per millimeter of mercury, and 0.22 liters per minute per millimeter of mercury, respectively. After acetazolamide treatment, bicarbonate concentration was reduced by 8.4 millimoles per liter, and CO2 response was shifted to the left with an increase in hypercapnic drive response. The authors concluded that patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome and higher bicarbonate concentrations had a more blunted CO2 response. Body mass index was not related to CO2 response. Acetazolamide decreased bicarbonate concentration and increased CO2 response. Due to the epidemic of obesity, there is no question that we will see increasing numbers of mechanically ventilated patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Many of these patients will have higher than normal bicarbonate concentrations and blunted CO2 response. This may make ventilator liberation of these patients more difficult. As Powers points out in his editorial, acetazolamide may be helpful in ventilator liberation in this patient population. Although the use of acetazolamide might facilitate extubation, it is not likely to affect the need for CPAP or non-invasive ventilation in these patients. So we still need to remember to institute CPAP or non-invasive ventilation after extubation. Effects of a flutter mucus clearance device on pulmonary function test results in healthy people 85 years and older in China is by Wang et al. 
The objective of this study was to investigate the impact of a new flutter-type mucus clearance device on pulmonary function test results in people greater than or equal to 85 years of age. The 60 subjects were distributed randomly into an intervention group and a control group. Spirometry was performed at baseline and after 28 days of using the flutter mucus clearance device. The authors recorded peak expiratory flow, FEV1, forced vital capacity, and FEV1 to FVC ratio. The intervention group used the flutter mucus clearance device during pulmonary exercises. The control group had no other interventions other than routine health care. Also recorded were episodes of fever, antibiotic therapy, and hospital visits during the 28 days of the study. Peak expiratory flow, FEV1, forced vital capacity, and FEV1 to FVC showed no significant differences between the two groups at baseline. Compared to baseline, on day 28, there were no significant differences in peak expiratory flow, FEV1, or FEV1 to FVC in either group. The mean difference in forced vital capacity between baseline and day 28 was 0.33 liters in the intervention group and 0.2 liters in the control group. There were no significant differences in the number of cases of fever, antibiotic therapy, or hospital visits between the groups. The authors concluded that the new flutter mucus clearance device improved elderly patients' forced vital capacity. It is interesting that the increase in force vital capacity at day 28 was greater in the group using the flutter device. However, the mechanism for this is unclear. The flutter device is usually considered for patients with airway clearance problems. However, airway clearance was not an outcome of interest in this study. As Sorensen points out in her editorial, this study is interesting, not only because it suggests a method to preserve pulmonary function in the elderly, but also because persons over 85 years of age are often not included in clinical research. Next is the paper by Guerin et al. Quantitative Analysis of Acid-Based Disorders in Patients with Chronic Respiratory Failure in Stable or Unstable Respiratory Condition. The objective of this study was to describe acid-based disorders with the Stewart approach and the conventional approach in patients with chronic respiratory failure. This was an observational prospective study in a medical intensive care unit and a pneumology ward of a university hospital. Patients were allocated to four groups, stable respiratory condition and elevated bicarbonate, stable respiratory condition and non-elevated bicarbonate, unstable respiratory condition and elevated bicarbonate, and unstable respiratory condition and non-elevated bicarbonate. Elevated bicarbonate was defined as greater than three standard deviations higher than the mean value in eight healthy volunteers. Non-respiratory disorders related to high, strong ion difference were observed in 12% of the patients with elevated bicarbonate and in none of those with non-elevated bicarbonate. Non-respiratory disorders related to low, strong ion difference were observed in 9% of patients with non-elevated bicarbonate and in none of those with elevated bicarbonate. Hypoalbuminemia was common, especially in unstable patients. 
normal standardized base excess, bicarbonate, and anion gap values were common. The Stewart approach detected high effective strong ion difference in 13% of normal standardized base excess and in 20% of normal anion gap corrected for albuminemia and low effective strong ion difference in 22% of non-elevated bicarbonate. The authors conclude that, in patients with chronic respiratory failure, the acid-base pattern is complex. Metabolic alkalosis is present in some patients with elevated bicarbonate, and metabolic acidosis is present in some with non-elevated bicarbonate. The diagnostic performance of the Stewart approach was better than that of the conventional approach, even when corrected anion gap was taken into account. Most clinicians, and certainly most respiratory therapists, are more familiar with the conventional approach to acid-base interpretation. Indeed, the Stewart approach is seldom used clinically, despite those who have advocated for its use for many years. I think it is fair to say that most clinicians find the Stewart approach too complicated for everyday use. This paper, like others, suggests that diagnostic performance of the Stewart approach may be better than that of the conventional approach. Perhaps it is time that we as clinicians become more comfortable with this approach. Agreement between a functional residual capacity estimated via automated gas dilution versus via computed tomography in plural effusion model is by graph. The measurement of functional residual capacity, FRC, in ventilated patients could help track the extent of acute lung disease, monitor recruitment of unstable lung units, or guide the use of PEEP. Quantitative analysis of computed tomography, CT, images of the lungs, is currently the accepted standard for FRC measurement, but is impractical for routine use. Gas dilution and gas tracer technologies, while attractive for research applications, require specialized equipment and skills missing from the clinical setting. In this study, the author simultaneously evaluated FRC by CT and FRC determined by a ventilator-incorporated wash-in-wash-out method in an animal model of unilateral pleural effusion that varied the fluid volume instilled and the applied PEEP. FRC by CT and FRC by wash-in, wash-out were simultaneously obtained at two PEEP levels, at baseline and at both pleural effusion volumes. A correlation of 0.89 between FRC by CT and FRC by wash-in, wash-out revealed concordance between the techniques, with directional agreement and acceptable bias and precision under all tested conditions. The authors concluded that excellent concordance between FRC by wash-in, wash-out and FRC by CT in an animal model of unilateral pleural effusion that stressed the capability of this technology. The technical advantage of the wash-in, wash-out technique is its incorporation into ventilator operation without requiring adjustments to ventilation. There has been interest in measuring FRC in mechanically ventilated patients for many years. However, this has been technically difficult until it recently became commercially available in one brand of ventilator. 
The measurement of FRC in mechanically ventilated patients might help track the extent of acute lung disease, monitor recruitment of unstable lung units, or guide the use of PEEP. Because this animal study did not address the use of FRC in subjects with acute lung injury, further study is needed to evaluate the role of FRC measurement in critically ill patients. One of the complicating issues clinically is knowing whether a change in FRC during PEEP titration, for example, is due to a change in alveolar recruitment or a change in alveolar overdistension. Next is the paper by Steinfort, Radiation Dose to Patients and Clinicians During Fluoroscopically Guided Biopsy of Peripheral Pulmonary Lesions. Fluoroscopic guidance may be utilized in some bronchoscopic procedures, including ultrasound-guided bronchoscopy for investigation of peripheral pulmonary lesions. Some authors have suggested this procedure may be performed without fluoroscopy to minimize risks due to radiation exposure. However, the radiation dose has never been quantified, so the risk remains unknown. The objective of this study was to determine the patient and clinician radiation exposure from fluoroscopy during bronchoscopy. The authors recorded exposure parameters during 45 consecutive ultrasound bronchoscopies with fluoroscopic guidance with a mobile C-arm fluoroscopy system. The authors calculated the patient effective radiation dose with Monte Carlo computer simulations. Passive, personal film dosimeters were placed on four sites on both the procedural list and the primary nursing assistant. The mean fluoroscopy screening time was 96 seconds. Patients received a median effective radiation dose of 0.49 millisieverts with a range of 0.16 to 1.3 millisieverts. Only the film dosimeters worn outside the clinician's protective aprons recorded measurable radiation doses. Based on typical attenuation properties of the prospective garments across the diagnostic X-ray energy range, the authors estimate that the effective radiation dose per procedure to the procedural list was 0.4 microsieverts and to the assistant was 0.2 microsieverts. The authors concluded that the patients are exposed to relatively small amounts of radiation from fluoroscopy during bronchoscopy. Clinically indicated fluoroscopic guidance during bronchoscopy should not be precluded on the basis of radiation safety concerns. Adequate shielding of clinicians results in negligible radiation doses during ultrasound bronchoscopy. Radiation exposure is a concern with fluoroscopic guidance during bronchoscopic procedures. These authors found that patients are exposed to relatively small amounts of radiation from fluoroscopy during bronchoscopy. Adequate shielding of clinicians results in negligible radiation doses during ultrasound bronchoscopy. Thus, as suggested by the authors, clinically indicated fluoroscopic guidance during bronchoscopy should not be precluded on the basis of radiation safety concerns. Tai Chi exercise for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a pilot study, is by Ye et al. 
The objective of this study was to determine the feasibility of a randomized controlled trial of the effect of a Tai Chi program on quality of life and exercise capacity in patients with COPD. The authors randomized 10 patients with moderate to severe COPD to 12 weeks of Tai Chi plus usual care or usual care alone. The Tai Chi training consisted of a one-hour class twice weekly that emphasized gentle movement, relaxation, meditation, and breathing techniques. Exploratory outcomes included disease-specific symptoms and quality of life, exercise capacity, pulmonary function tests, mood, and self-efficacy. The authors also conducted qualitative interviews to capture patient narratives regarding their experience with Tai Chi. Among four of the five patients in the intervention group, adherence to the study protocol was excellent. At 12 weeks, there was a significant improvement in chronic respiratory questionnaire score among the Tai Chi participants compared to the usual care group. There were non-significant trends toward improvement in six-minute walk distance, Center for Epidemiologic Studies Depression Scale, and University of California San Diego Shortness of Breath Score. There were no significant changes in either group's peak oxygen uptake. The authors concluded that a randomized controlled trial of Tai Chi is feasible in patients with moderate to severe COPD. Tai Chi exercise as an adjunct to standard care warrants further investigation. Tai Chi is a gentle meditative exercise that employs detailed regiments of flowing circular movements, balance and weight shifting, breathing techniques, and cognitive tools such as visualization and focused internal awareness. It provides mild to moderate aerobic activity, it contains elements of breathing and respiratory muscle training, and it includes stress management. Each of these characteristics is an important aspect of COPD management. Tai Chi is safe, accessible, enjoyable, and has a high adherence rate. This study reports the results of a randomized controlled trial on the effect of a Tai Chi program on quality of life and exercise capacity in patients with COPD. The authors found that Tai Chi is feasible in patients with moderate to severe COPD. I agree with them that Tai Chi exercise as an adjunct to standard care in patients with COPD warrants further investigation. This month's review article is Goal-Directed Therapy for Severely Hypoxic Patients with Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, Permissive Hypoxemia by Abdel Salam and Chaifetz. Permissive hypoxemia is a lung protective strategy that aims to provide a patient with severe ARDS a level of oxygen delivery that is adequate to avoid tissue hypoxia while minimizing the detrimental effects of the often toxic ventilatory support required to maintain normal arterial oxygenation. However, in many patients with severe ARDS, it can be difficult to achieve a balance between maintaining adequate tissue oxygenation and avoiding ventilator-induced lung injury. A potential strategy for the management of such patients involves goal-oriented manipulation of cardiac output and, if necessary, hemoglobin concentration to compensate for hypoxemia and maintain a normal but not supranormal value of oxygen delivery. 
Although it has not yet been studied, this approach is theorized to improve clinical outcomes of critically ill patients with severe ARDS. The authors stress that the goal of this article is not to convince the reader that this approach is necessarily correct, as data are clearly lacking, but rather to provide a basis for continued thought, discussion, and potential research. This is a very nice review of the use of goal-directed therapy for severely hypoxic patients with ARDS, with an emphasis on the role of permissive hypoxemia. This review should stimulate discussion and research on this important subject. Kelly et al. report a case of chemotherapy-associated recurrent pneumothoraces in lymphangioleomyomatosis. Yakovone et al. report a case of intercostal artery laceration following thoracentesis. The teaching case of the month by Goldman et al is a case of cryptococcus in an immunocompetent patient. The open forum at the 56th International Respiratory Congress of the American Association for Respiratory Care is an opportunity for attendees to review the results of scientific studies performed by their colleagues. Respiratory Care is pleased to publish these abstracts in the November issue. We also look forward to publishing papers arising from these abstracts in the future. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.